Gideon Haig. He talks about his new book, On Warn, the motivation behind and the construction of it, and the differences from it to the other biographical sketch he had done of Jack Iverson in The Mystery Spinner. He also discusses the club cricket culture, the need to play cricket at any level to gain perspective as a writer, the positives and drawbacks of staying an independent voice, his favorite books, amongst other things. Welcome to the show, Gideon. Hello, Sebastian. Thanks for coming on the show for the second time. That's right. Thank you for asking. Uh, my pleasure always. Um, last week, uh, it's been a, you know, it was a pretty hectic week for you. Uh, you delivered the Bradman <laughs> oration speech and mm-hmm. you had a book published on Warren. Yeah. Um, let's talk I about- two, and I went to two training sessions and I had a committee meeting and I played a game of cricket. And uh, all the bones are still in the same place. Everything. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I can't wait for um, can't wait for the next session. I'm hitting the ball beautifully. Got a new bat. Feeling great. So uh, you're on your way to uh, beating your own uh, personal record, Yara record. Was it 92? <laughs> yeah, I think these days I just think in terms of number of games played. To me, that <laughs> seems achievement enough. <laughs> Getting back to the book, I guess if you talk about uh, your. Uh, Cricket, we'll keep talking about it forever. Sure. Uh, how is this attempt of yours different from the so many others that are out there that have written about Warren, including yeah. yourself? Well, I'd like to think that it's good because I don't think the other books are very. Uh, I think that, you know, for all the words that have been written about Warren, uh, in book form, he's remained a bit elusive. Uh, very patchy. I mean, even his own works are pretty insubstantial. And I just thought it was time for someone to try and take him seriously, uh, which I don't think a lot of writers have. Uh, I think there's a bit of an assumption these days that because people have seen it on television or on video, they don't need to have it described. But I think that makes the need actually far more pressing um, to actually describe the sensations of watching someone who was so watchable. Mm. And the remarkable thing to me about war is that you can watch these things again and again and again, and they still seem magical. Uh, I quote an Australian historian in the book, a man called Greg Denning, who said that nothing is so fleeting as sporting achievement and nothing so lasting as the recollection of it. Mm-hmm. I think it's absolutely true in, uh, in Warren's case. Uh, it was interesting, a lot of people over the last week or so when they've had me on to be interviewed have played the audio of the ball of the century, which mm. is, of course, uh, Warren's ball to dismiss Gatting um, 20 years ago. And the interesting thing about Agnew's call is that he doesn't know what's happened. He initially starts off by saying that ball's taken Gatting on the pad. Oh, no, it's bowled him. And being standing there, he doesn't know what's going on. And we're going to have to wait for the replay. 
And I, th- I find that kind of fascinating uh, and, and, and very special and very unique to Warren that he's one of those bowlers who actually made us doubt the evidence of our own eyes. Uh, and it is fortunate, actually, that he lived in this modern age, which the repeated examination of his art from a multitude of angles and at a multitude of speeds and in different granularities of, of detail, uh, that he does permit repeated study. You can go back to him again and again and you always find something more to say, something new to say. I was surprised at how much I felt I had to say about Warren, even after having written hundreds of thousands of words about him in my career. Mm-hmm. I mean, I must confess, you know, when I sat down that first day, which was actually the 1st of March, I thought, hmm, what if I, <laughs> wonder if I've got anything to add on this very substantial written record. And then I found that it was actually surprisingly easy because it was surprisingly fun, because it was surprisingly pleasant. You know, Warren is a fun cricketer. He's fun to watch and he's certainly fun to write about. What gave you the motivation to even get started on this project? Well, it always helps when you're asked by a publisher. Uh It was the case that I had never really considered doing a book like this. It does seem all a bit obvious. (laughs) And I'm not really been about obvious (laughs) in my Career, I prefer to make things a bit difficult in much the same way as I do batting. And, you know, certainly I prefer things, you know, a little bit more complicated, a bit more nuanced. But there was lots there to work with. And it was just the art of sort of taking something that appears obvious and making it perhaps a little less so and perhaps um, revealing some things that, that hadn't previously been considered. When a lot of the episodes in Warren's career we sort of recall the details of them, but we perhaps don't quite recall the context of them. And it's to go back and refresh our minds as to the context. And the other thing is a lot of the sort of the controversies that he was involved in, involving various personal peccadilloes, now seem incredibly trivial, incredibly transient. Uh, all the way through Warren's career, he kept telling us that these things didn't really matter or they weren't anyone's business but his own. And frankly, I think the world's kind of come around to sharing Warney's point of view. The rest of us have come in line with Warney. Um, we've sort of taken him at his word and we've, we've realised that what really matters is the art and the skill. And um, that's certainly something that we as cricket fans could all revel in. When you start off writing on a subject that has been written about, you had written uh, two uh, feature articles, feature-length articles for Global Mail as well on Warren. How do you figure out which angles to cover from so that you have that, you know, distinct uh, mm. voice? Well, part of, the, part of the fun of writing about Warney or part of the ease of writing about Warney is that the main points of the story are so well known. Uh, you don't actually have to go through the rigmarole of describing Warren's career ball by ball. It's all been done before, and it's actually a little bit tired. Uh, what you can do is you can be much more selective in the way in which you choose those parts of his career that you emphasise, those clusters of facts that you draw together, those comparisons that you can draw with, with other cricketers and with other times. You can actually have a bit of fun with it. Um, you know, I decided to break it up into five different chapters. It just seemed to work that way. I didn't really plan it. Uh, the first chapter is about the making of Warren, the context of his arising 
in Australian cricket, which is actually extremely interesting because that sort of that late 80s, early 90s period is a period where Australian cricket's coming to terms with the fact that it can't depend on its traditional means of promoting talent um, to remain competitive in international cricket. It was a period where we weren't where we thought we should have been in international cricket. The West Indies were top of the heap. And we perhaps have to uh, take steps as Australians had in the Olympics in the in the early 1980s. This, uh, what we regard as you know the sort of the, the academy period of Australian cricket, and that's kind of a unique period in Australian cricket. It's a big um, epochal change for the way in which we approach the game. The second chapter is about uh, the art of war. Um, I devote. Quite a lot of space to a sort of a physical description of the action, which you know was seen fifty thousand times at, at international level, and perhaps after a while we we took it for granted. But it is interesting when you kind of hark back to watching Australian cricket in the nineteen seventies and eighties. You often heard about leg spin. You were often told that the bowlers that you were watching were leg spinners, but they didn't seem to have the sort of the magic that leg spin was meant to have, that, that great was associated with the great leg spinners, you know, your Ramets O'Reilly's and, and Benno's. Uh, and then, you know, all of a sudden, Shane Warne arrives and it's almost as though he hasn't been coached. It's like he's kind of intuited leg spin from first principles. He's invented it or crafted it in his own image. And you do discover that leg spin is exactly as marvellous <laughs> as they all those years, they weren't lying. Um, he's, in a sense, he's kind of like a myth made flesh. The, the third chapter is about what I regard as sort of the four key relationships of Warren's career, uh, playing relationships, uh, that is with McGrath, with McGill, with John Buchanan and with, with Steve Waugh. And they're all, they all sort of reveal sort of different sides of Warren, different, different shades of Warren. Fourth chapter is about the various controversies of, of Warren's career and his relationship with the media and the change in the kind of the sporting industrial entertainment complex of, of which he was a, a, a prime part. And the last is about kind of Warren in Australia and his relationship with some vexed parts of the Australian sporting psyche, uh, masculinity, um, aggression, and nationalism. Um, and I was with the inevitable little bit about Liz Hurley as well. I mean, you could have done it any number of different ways. This, that's just the one that I chose. That's just the one that I arrived at. Uh, and, you know, and at the end of the month, um, I wouldn't want to overemphasize this. I did take a month. It was I sort of started on March the 1st and I finished on March the 31st. It's a 31 day month, so you can get quite a lot done. <laughs> And it kind of, I could have gone on, but it kind of seemed complete in itself. Uh, there was no point in, in going on any further. There was no point in Shane Ward adding another two or three paces to his to his action. The result would have been the same. So, I mean, frankly, the last book I wrote was 200,000 words, and I certainly don't feel like doing that again. <laughs> you had written a book on Jack Iverson, and mm. you have Shane Warne. In a way, these are biographies, but you don't really, uh, you know, it's basically your impressions and historical evidences. I mean, one, of course, you were alive to watch it. Mm. So how was it different? 
writing about these two different subjects. Well, it is interesting that the, these two cricketers should have lived so close to one another. They're both from Brighton, same suburb in, in Melbourne. They both played for the Brighton Cricket Club, and yet they could hardly have been more remote from, from one another in their attitudes to the game and, and, uh, and their beliefs in their own ability. I guess the, the easiest and, and simplest contrast is that Iverson never believed that he belonged at the top level. He always felt as though he was an imposter. And in some respects he was because he arrived at cricket at a relatively late age. He didn't begin playing uh, at any sort of level seriously until after the Second Second World War, by which time he was in his 1930s. And a lot about his methods, uh, he, he was quite secretive about. Um, he was very heavily invested in the idea of preserving a mystery around his bowling. Well, of course, Shane Warne is the very antithesis of that. He's a man who loved the limelight, who loved fame, who really always felt that, that he belonged and actually had the very opposite attitude to his bowling wiles. Uh, amazing that, you know, Warne, whenever cameras wanted him to demonstrate what he did, eagerly, went along with the idea of showing them off. I, I can remember countless kind of TV masterclass at lunchtime and, and tea time where he said, well, this is the leg spinner, this is the top spinner, this is the flipper, that kind of thing. He had no taboo about showing his, um, showing his art. It's almost like a, a, a Julian Assange-esque attitude to, uh, to, to secrecy. Uh, and he always felt incredibly comfortable with that because he believed that, well, fundamentally, the batsmen still had to play it, didn't they? Uh, and that was easier said than done. And in some respects, you know, that confidence was one of the most impressive things about him. Uh, the fact that for 15 years, his action was you know, relentlessly scrutinised. His variations were watched over and over again. Uh, groundsmen had the opportunity to prepare pitches that, that didn't suit him. Batsmen had the opportunity to rehearse against bowlers like him to try and replicate the kind of match situations that they might find themselves in. Umpires had the chance to come to terms with Warren and the, you know, the aggression of his appealing and you know, his art as a psychological manipulator. But Warren managed to stay one step ahead of the game. <laughs> now let's talk about your beginnings as a writer. You, know, you were a business writer and you have you know, transitioned into cricket writer mostly. You still, of course, write about write on other topics. How has this transition occurred? Well, I think, um, well, I mean, I can tell you the, the, the basic facts of the matter. Uh, I was, a, yes, I was a business journalist. I, I um, Went to work in the UK after about five or six years in Australia. This was in 89, 90, and sort of had always been quite interested. I'd loved cricket and a little bit frustrated by the way in which people wrote about it, and pitch and complain about it, or I could actually have a go myself, which I did. Um, I started writing for a fanzine called Johnny Miller 96 Not Out. Mm-hmm. Some people here in your podcast audience might remember that. It was a lot of fun. Uh, I started contributing to Wisdom Cricket Monthly, 
just I sent an article off to David Frith and he published it and we began a kind of an editorial relationship. I'm very fond of Frithy. Uh, and when I came back to Australia, uh, I began work on a – I'd written a business book already. I wrote a, decided to write a book about World Series cricket, um, which had been an important sort of part of my cricket upbringing. Um, I was you know, in, at primary school when uh, Kerry Packer – recruited the cream of the world's cricketers and they came to Geelong, my, my hometown. That was terribly exciting and and all of a sudden, hard as it is maybe now to believe that it was exciting, but it was a thrill to have cricket on two whole channels in Australia. <laughs> uh, you know, to actually be able to flick between Channel 2, the ABC, and, and Channel 9 and watch an entirely different cricket attraction with many of the world's best players in it. You know, I'll be forever thankful to Kerry Packer for the opportunity to watch Barry Richards, for instance, which I would not otherwise have had marvellous player. Uh, so I wrote that book in 92. Um, funny enough, I remember doing um, a lot of the interviews for that book at the Boxing Day Test Match of 1992. Uh, I stood up the back of the Channel 9 commentary position and, and snaffled the commentators as they came on and off duty. And that was, of course, the test match where Shane Warne took seven for against the against the West Indies in '52, including a famous flipper to dismiss Richie Richardson. So, in some respects, you know, that that's 20 years ago now. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, who would have known then that I'd actually end up writing a book about the the young cricketer who was then making his way in the game? I've always sort of remained kind of sort of necessity and um, and design. Um, sort of a little bit outside the cricket mainstream uh, until very recently, um, actually last summer. I didn't write regularly for an Australian paper. I did most of my match reporting and columns for either Crick Info or for The Guardian and The Times, uh, just simply because the cricket press out here is, is quite small and there weren't the opportunities didn't arise and I also didn't want to go and work in a sports section. I've always kind of considered myself to be a journalist who writes about sport rather than a sports journalist. Mm-hmm. Sort of come and go from from the subject. But I'm doing a very you know, I'm doing a completely different piece at the moment about uh, the making of political history in Australia, about the rise of prime ministerial libraries in this country. And before that, I did a, I did a major piece on central banking in, uh, in Australia. And, you know, I have an omnivorous diet as a journalist. I think um, it's better that way. It keeps you fresher. It keeps you limber. It keeps you broad and kind of aware of the, of the wider world. I mean, sometimes we often talk about how important it is to remember the wider world mm. in sports, but it's easy enough to sort of go with the flow and to, uh, and to you know, sort of continue to, to allow ourselves to be swallowed up by sport because sport is so big these days. But occasionally I think it's really valuable and important to, to step outside of in fact, if I go on writing about cricket for too long, I'll get bored and I begin to pine for, for something else. Hmm. I see. You mentioned that, you know, for the majority of the time you have been an independent uh, journalist. And comes a question from Mahesh. He wonders whether this 
need to main, be independent or stay independent and not get plugged into the system, does it come in the way of any necessary access you may need to uh, cricketers and the people running cricket? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I think sometimes, you know, if you, there is always a danger, I think, of being kind of swallowed up by the by the whole enterprise. Uh, it was interesting recently asked to deliver the Bradman oration, you know, something as kind of establishment and mainstream as that. You know, it was a great honour to to be asked, but uh, but I didn't get paid for it, and I wouldn't have accepted money for it anyway, mm-hmm. and. Quite sure that I was critical of Cricket Australia in the uh, in the course of the oration, just to remind that um, that you know I'm independent and I have my own point of view. It's not it's not um, an institutional point of view. It's something that I've arrived at autonomously. Peter Bird once said to me that he was often wrong but never in doubt, and uh, <laughs> I probably I'm probably a little bit the same. Now, if I'm wrong, at least I've arrived at my at my uh, inaccuracy by by independent means. You would be quite sure that I will not be speaking anyone else's agenda. Mm-hmm. I was having a conversation earlier uh, with uh, Dilip Premchandran of Western India now about this access to players. There is a danger of you know, as you said, getting swallowed by the system. But if you're too far removed, you may not be able to get out the stories in the way that you would want to present them. Yeah, so how do yeah. you walk the tight line? Yeah, it's a good question. It's a good question. The players are definitely, in the, in the, in the 20 years or so that I've been writing about the game, have actually become much, much less accessible. And that has led to some kind of uh, unease between the two of them. I think the journalists sort of nurture illusions about players and players probably do the same about journalists. Hmm. It's a great shame, actually, because the... the the players have great capacity as as educators and and expositors of the game, and the journalists love cricket. There's no doubt about it. Um, they love nothing better than than talking about it, but they usually do it amongst themselves, which which is a great shame. Look, I I don't seek players out, but I also don't avoid them at the same time. And one kind of one slight kind of advantage, or at least element of, of my cricket writing is that I am a player. Uh, no matter how humbly I am a player, I go out there and I try to do it uh, to the best of my ability every week for my club. And I miss it when I don't play. Watching cricket for too long, I get itchy. You know, I want to go out and play a game because I love it. I love the, I love the physical sensations of it. I love the, technolo- the technical and, and temperamental challenges of it. I love the situations that it puts you in. And that does give you something in common with even the best player in the game, the fact that you're out there having a go. Uh, it was interesting, last, last, um, last week I sat next to, to Ricky Ponting at the, at the Bradman oration, and we immediately struck up a conversation about the cricket that we played and that we were playing. He played at the Sheffield Shield in the Sheffield Shield game that day. I'd played at the weekend. I'd been training the night before. I was going to training the, the next evening. Uh, we just started to talk about grounds that we played at. We started to talk about gear that we used. Uh, just stuff, you know, stuff that cricketers talk about. And it's amazing how far you can get 
in a conversation just talking about stuff, stuff that cricketers talk, talk about. It's fun to talk about. Um, under the skin, I think that we've actually got quite a lot in, in common. And it was interesting that night after the oration, we, um, we had a panel discussion. Uh, it was the, the three individuals that we, that we had up were, were my suggestions, um, Ricky, Ed Cowan and Melanie Jones, mm-hmm. and basically asked them to talk about their clubs, the clubs that they played at, you know, who'd influenced them as, as young players. And I don't know whether that's on the Crick Info video of it. But it was on the Cricket Australia website, I think, the panel discussion. It was a really good discussion. Um, I thought all three of them really opened up and spoke very generously about help that they've been given in their career, um, the values that they attached to being part of a club, to being, a, to, to being part of an institution that was larger than themselves, and about the kind of the, the ideas that, that, that are instilled about kind of reciprocity and, and mutual respect. I think all three of them would be very much at home at my club. And, in fact, I can say that with some authority because on a Saturday night, uh, we launched my book on Warn at um, at my home ground, and Ed Cowan came along and and gave the launch speech and was fantastic, and stayed all night and but had a ball, had a great time. Uh, in fact, texted me the next day saying what a fantastic time he'd had, and uh, how he'd just loved to come back, which is actually the kind of guy that that Ed is. But I. I'm constantly reminded of the fact that, you know, even though I play cricket at a very, very humble level, it's important to me. It's important to my appreciation of the game, just to remind myself how difficult it is, how frustrating the game can be, Mm -hmm. uh, how exciting it can be, um, what fun it is to be part of a team, uh, how uh, challenging it can be to be under pressure. In a, in a match situation. And then you kind of t- try to imagine doing that in a ground with tens of thousands of people in it. Mm-hmm. It's a great game. It's a player's game. I think it's a player's game even more than a spectator's game, uh, partly because the action takes place so far away from the spectators, but partly also because um, you only really get to understand what's going on in a game if you're directly involved in it. Other than that, it's just impressionism. It's of my view that uh, the more you play, the more you appreciate the game, it prevents you from being a cynic. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. Uh, you enjoy the game for what it is, so you're not uh, operating from the other end of the spectrum where you're negative and pessimistic about things. There was a period where I didn't play it, just for, for, she- for pressure of work and pressure of time sort of in my late 20s, early 30s, I was working evenings and I couldn't get to training. And if I can't train, then I'm not much used to anyone, not that I'm very much used to anyone generally. But the minute that I went back to playing in, which is 20 years ago now, I started at my current club, I realised this is why I love it. This is what I love it. This is what's been missing from my, from my cricket experience and I'm so grateful to have it back. To harp back to the conversation with Dilip and the... Uh, lack of access to cricket players and we were talking about long form features and mm. we have Gideon Haig writing it 
well, almost exclusively. And uh, in majority of cricket portals, we don't see that. And he was talking about the bottom line, the economics, economics of uh, have commissioning uh, long-form features. It just doesn't get the hits, uh, not enough hits to justify paying that kind of money that would be required. I see it as the editors washing their hands of some sort of responsibility because if you grow a whole generation of readers never having exposed them to long-form features, so how do we overcome that? You know, We shouldn't have that art form uh, fade away from our collective memory, mm. especially in cricket. Like, you know, if they if people just grow up on T20, how are they ever going to understand a test match? Unless there are kind of examples out there of the, of the kind of journalism that you're talking about, there's nothing really, nothing else really to aspire to. Um, yeah, that is disappointing. But then again, um, I think that cricket journalism, in lots of respects, is as exciting as it's, as it's ever been, perhaps because it's been opened up to... To, to outsiders, uh, you know, I've recently started to blog for, for the Australian. Um, I'm very, very late to, to cricket blogging, but I've been a been a big reader of cricket blogs for six or seven years, and have always really enjoyed them because uh, they're personal, um, they're engaged, they're enthusiastic, they're driven by a love of the game, and they're fresh. They're not jaded. Um, they're not you know, the same kind of, the same cliches uh, falling into place like iron filings to a, to a magnet. <laughs> Flowers bloom out there. Um, it's, uh, I love the, um, the the sheer variety and, and range of, of, of different voices in, in cricket writing these days. A lot of them having started as, as, as amateurs uh, and a lot of them, probably never being anything other than amateurs. But, you know, I'm an amateur kind of guy. Uh, I'm an amateur cricketer. And uh, maybe I feel a sort of a simpatico with, with amateur writers. On that topic, there is a question from Dummett. He wants to know from you whether you have any words of wisdom for writers who are not uh, professional journalists, you know, for bloggers, in terms of finding the drive to keep writing when faced with mundane things like, you know, nine-to-five job. (laughs) (laughs) I think he would need more encouragement to stick with the nine-to-five job, wouldn't he? (laughs) It sounds painful. Uh, I can't advise him on that. Uh, I think, look, the advice that I always give to to all young writers who are trying to to make a go of this is not to forget to read. Um, It was... Now, being a, uh, a greedy and omnivorous reader of cricket literature and other literature that, um, that gave me the exposure to you know, different styles and different attitudes and different ways of seeing the world that, um, that encouraged me to experiment in, in my own writing, encouraged me to, to push myself. And the other thing is that don't... Overestimate how attractive being a professional is these days. Working inside those you know, giant 
sport entertainment beasts or one of those big mastheads or one of those television networks. They're under enormous economic pressures these days. Uh, demands for productivity, demands for content. It must be a real chore to, to work in some of those places. I don't feel that because I've tried to stay outside that, that world as much as possible. I, I often say that, you know, I, I still love journalism because I was able to stop doing it um, in a daily newspaper in the, in the mid-'90s. Um, I think if I'd stayed in the mainstream of journalism since then, I think I'd be pretty well over it and be looking for another career by now. Because from my interaction with colleagues and, and friends who have stayed there, it's not a lot of fun. Uh, perhaps the way to do it in the future will be as an amateur because you only ever do it as an amateur when you feel as though you've got something to say. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. I mean, you have such diverse areas that you have written about. How do you alternate from one to the other and how does your process of writing go about? You know, do you, you know, shut yourself out of the, from the outside world when you're focused on the book? Um, do, you, do you read other books when uh, you're writing or you you fear that you, it may subconsciously affect you? It's a good question. It's a good question. I remember, I remember Ram... It's partly, it's partly uh, raised by Mahesh again. Yeah, well, it's, a good, it's a good question. Um, I remember Ram Chandra Guha saying to me one day that, uh, that he had uh, once received the advice that you should never read Dickens too young. <laughs> would only ever write like Dickens. Uh, sometimes, you know, the, the, the styles of, of great writers are kind of so heady um, and so overpowering that you just want to sort of pastiche them. Um, I dare say that probably I read Carter perhaps a little bit too young when I was, you know, impressionable and for a while all I wanted to do was read was write like Carter's. Fortunately, I did that when I was about 12 years old and I got over it. Uh, how do you go back back and forth between between different subjects? Well, I always try to only ever write about something that I'm sincerely interested in finding out about. Uh, I and this this will kind of sound a bit sort of pious and a bit high minded, but I um, I never ever ask whether or what I'm going to be paid for a piece. I mean, that, that will sound ridiculous in, in, this, in this day and age. But I always think that if, if I ask, <laughs> then I'm obviously doing it for some other reason than, that, than I'm interested in. I'm doing it as a means of making money. Uh, a piece is either worth doing or it's not worth doing, and all the money in the world won't make up for doing a crap piece on a boring subject. And the fact that you're being not paid for something is no excuse not to do something that's really, really interesting. Uh, but it's always been, you know, exciting and, and broadening, and um, and there's always been some benefit from it down the track that I that I hadn't foreseen. That's that's a simple rule of thumb. You only write about stuff that you really want to do. Um, and you know, if you if you stick to that, you can write about you know almost anything. Mencken, I think, once said that there were no boring stories, only boring journalists, and I've, I've generally found that to be to be true. I'm always interested in how 
much you can do with a with a particular subject. One of the fun things about writing about cricket now is that you know, I really have to kind of push myself and challenge myself to say something new because I've written so much about it. Mm-hmm. So I kind of try to get interested in different aspects of cricket that maybe I haven't thought about before. Uh, I've, you know, over the last few years, I've become very, very interested in governance and, um, and you know, cricket's economic structures, which is it's a great time to be interested in them because they're undergoing convulsive change and it's, mm-hmm. it's even quite hard to, to keep up with. But I kind of got interested in that because I realised that it was, it was going to become really fundamental. Uh, I mean, I know that a lot of journalists' eyes glaze over when they hear the word governance these days. And, uh, I, uh, I, I mean, I've always, because I've got the business background, I, I do have an interest in the way in which people manage things, uh, the way in which people organise things, the way in which people plan, uh, the way in which people kind of imagine markets that, that perhaps don't previously exist, the way in which people sort of shape shift and 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 alter products to to meet an imagined demand so that's you know used to be quite strange that i had this kind of background in in business from from way back i wrote about business and sport <laughs> how strange that you should write about two such completely different areas <laughs> you already have idea of a on a, on your next book a next cricket book well i think the next thing i'll probably do is Uh, a book about the Ashes series, back-to-back Ashes series of, of next year. I'm not sure that time is necessarily going to going to permit me to do um, anything more deeper or, or thorough, although I do actually have another book out at the moment, which you probably don't know about because basically no one does. I've written a little e-book um, called The Deserted Newsroom. It's about the future of news media in a digital environment. It's for two-thirds of diddly squat on um, on the Penguin website, if you're interested enough in it. But I did I did quite a lot of work on it, and I interviewed um, a lot of people who are sort of at the cutting edge of, of media at the moment in Australia, uh, both the leading edge and the bleeding edge. And I found some really interesting um, sort of... Uh, I thought it would be probably more of a sackcloth and ashes kind of story than... Than, um, than, than it actually was. I, I think there are actually considerable grounds for, for optimism out there, but it's definitely going to be a very different media world than the one that I grew up in. Talking about the ashes, I mean, you had compilation of uh, your articles. When you write those articles, is it always in the back of your mind that, you know, this is going to go into a book, so, you know, I have to craft it differently, or that does not enter your judgment at all? The days when you sort of used to be able to write a sort of a magisterial retrospective on tours a past. I love those books. I grew up on them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it almost seems a little bit unfair to do them now. Um, you know, the players don't get the chance to play their innings all over again, so why should you go back and write your views? And it's actually part of the fun of, of working out where you were right and where you were wrong about about things. You might as well be honest about it. And actually these days, frankly, in a, in a, in a digital environment, people can actually look up what you wrote in the first place, uh, as embarrassing as that may be from um, from your point of view. So you, know, you might as well be, be open and honest about these things. I mean, my 2005 Ashes book uh, is sort of 
full of red herrings and 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 faints and and illusions and you know, mistaken prophecies because that's the kind of rubber that it was. Mm-hmm. And I think everyone who made predictions in that series loved being proved wrong. It's it, it was one of the reasons why you know it was such a great series to watch. I can remember at the in the fourth test. Uh, I remember as the, you know, England were meant to knock off the runs easily in the in the fourth innings, and then Shane Warne took a hand, and and everything was was uh, the game was afoot again. And I can remember putting down the lid of my computer and putting my head on top of it and saying, "I just can't do this anymore. I just can't write. I just can't rewrite another fucking piece." <laughs> With a smile on my face, because you know it was the game was toying with us that summer. It was just great to be a part of. One last question, and I'll let you go. You mentioned uh, reading Cardis when you were twelve year old. Question comes from uh, Pavan Bardwaj, and uh, he wants to know what what are your favorite fiction slash sports fiction books, and not. Non-cricket sports books. Non-cricket sports books. Okay, well, I can think of a really good example straight away that um, that was quite influential on me, which was, um, I think it's the summer of 49, which is um, David Halberstam's book about the 1949 World Series. Mm-hmm. Wonderful book about a seminal World Series uh, that, captured the imagination of the baseball world, which I didn't actually know very much about at the time, but but also kind of very powerfully evokes a period in American history and analyses American society through the aperture of of baseball. And I can remember reading that book and thinking, boy, it would be great to do something like that about cricket, and which is one of the reasons why I wrote The Summer Game, which is my book about Australian cricket in the 1950s and 60s. It's a little bit different to the, to the Halberstam book. It doesn't concentrate on one particular year. It concentrates on two decades. But it was an attempt to kind of approach society through the medium of the, of the sport that it played. Uh, and that was that was a lot of fun and, and, um, and kind of fascinating. Another book that I really loved that was quite kind of influential on me is um, is a book called Fisher's Face. Um, the Admiral Jackie Fisher uh, during the First World War, and um, this particular very fine English writer called Jan Morris did a book that was basically stimulated by this one particular photograph, uh, sort of constantly teasing and tugging at the nuances of this of this photograph in order to reveal uh, this historical character in a period. And I like that. That, that style of book that is able to do lots with with a little. Uh, my book, Jack, my book about Jack Iverson is a little bit like that. Um, to take kind of an obscure historical character and sort of continue to to drill away at the at the at the story at the at the legend to to really interrogate it. And I was quite I was also quite influenced in that book by uh, a book called The Quest for Corvo by an English critic called A.J.A. Simons. Baron Corvo was this fabulously obscure English novelist who wrote novels about, wildly imaginative novels about Vatican intrigue. 
And the quest for Corvo is about this particular writer, Simons' obsession with Corvo and his story, uh, you know, and includes quite a lot about the the biographical apparatus. The, this is the way in which I found out stuff about Baron Corvo. Mm. And there's, there's, there's an element of that in the Iverson book as, as well, where I sort of go through some of the... Um, discuss some of the sort of the research avenues and, and blind alleys that, 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 that I took uh, along the way. Uh, I could speak about this indefinitely, Sebastian, as you can probably tell. Uh, <laughs> a lot have been kind of influential on me. Uh, and each one has kind of been valuable. Even the bad books are valuable because they teach you what not to do. True. You know, a, lot of, a lot of bad books about Shane Warne and... <laughs> If anything, that was just uh, that was an encouragement to go off and, and have my own go at the subject. Fantastic. We'll uh, end the interview here. And uh, I must congratulate you on a great job on the uh, book. It was a fantastic read. It was while reading the book, trying to recreate Shane Warne's run-up and then the way he walked back and his appealing. It was uh, you know, thoroughly a brilliant uh, work. Congratulations. You know, it is interesting to me that I... When I sat down to think about that, I couldn't think of a really, really good description of Shane Warne. Perhaps the assumption is that because we saw it so much mm-hmm. and we so often from so many different angles, that everything that could be said had been said on the subject. Often the most most fascinating things are you know, lying in front of us and just, just, just waiting for us to, to pay them some attention. And I... Can't think of a better subject than, than Shane Warne and, uh, and his art. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Savage. Thank you, Gideon. It was wonderful talking to you. Anytime. Cheers. Couch Talk.